So this is literally the most challenging Sunday in the calendar year to preach at Providence Bible Church, and let me tell you why. Your stomachs right now are saying it's lunchtime. It's already happening. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm, I don't have the governmental authority to roll it back. Yeah, we're gonna. You're gonna fast for an hour and listen to me. That's kind of tough. So. Bear with me. I'll try to. I'll try to keep it moving. Uh, and if your tummy is grumbling, that's that's legitimate. Like, yeah, that. And see, and and now it's in your head, and it will be in your head. Yeah, uh, precisely. So, we we got some challenges ahead of us, but I think we're going to make it. I love to read about Winston Churchill. He is uh, roughly my favorite historical character. Um, outside of Jesus, right? Because we're at church, so the right answer is always Jesus. Jesus, then Winston Churchill, uh, if, if you're asking for my list. He was bombastic, you know? He kind of a little bit known for making speeches that were energetic, that, that his fellow parliamentarians liked to boo. Um, he was alert to the danger of the Germans across the English Channel. Uh, long before most of his peers. He was persistent in presenting his case, much to his own government's chagrin. You know, it it was his own people that he was ticking off when he was doing this. Um, And then God used Winston Churchill in a really powerful way to save Western civilization. You know, nothing big, just I'm just going to save Western civilization, and and we're going to use Winston Churchill to accomplish that. Winston Churchill also gave really wonderful speeches. Like that was he was known for that. He you can read them, you can read excerpts of them, they're brilliant. Now, the problem that Churchill faced in the 30s when Hitler was reestablishing Germany's power, Germany's military, was that no one wanted to believe there was a problem. No one wanted to believe there was a problem. Now, Give them a bit of a pass, right? Just just like we give the United States a bit of a pass for being slow on that one. World War I was awful. It was awful. Everybody was impacted by it. Everyone. It was so bad and there was so much hope that we could avoid ever doing anything like that again that even when it started to kind of seem like maybe we're headed back that direction, the easy thing to do was to say, no, not going to be a problem. We're going to be okay. Don't worry about it. Hitler, eh. Germans probably want peace too. The Germans, of course, felt pretty put upon by the Treaty of Versailles. There was a lot of stuff that went into that whole situation. But typically people were turtling, hoping that the, the League of Nations, the predecessor to the United Nations, would, would win and that everything would be peaceful. It made sense. There was a desire to appease and little desire for any discussion that might push Britain back to war. Our task today, here in Romans 3, is a little bit like Churchill's. There's some similarities, I think, between Paul and Winston. They both built solid, irrefutable arguments. They both knew how to turn a phrase. We'll see some of that today. And they both knew how to make a point. Now, uh... If you don't know me very well, you may not know that I work with books. That's what I do, but I think most of you know that. 
Uh, and there is a piece of punctuation that's a little line with a little dot under it. What's that called, guys? No, line, dot. Exclamation point, that's right. Now, I think that exclamation points are lazy writing. I think exclamation points are used when you didn't know how to make the sentence emphatic on its own. I think what Paul does today is writes a whole big section that serves as an exclamation point. This whole section is him putting an exclamation point on the fact that we're all guilty. That's what he's going to do today. It's the crescendo of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. Remember that the night is always darkest before the dawn, and night's about to get pretty dark. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to read Romans 3. God our Father, we're thankful for your word. It's a gift to us. We're thankful for the gospel. Thankful for the way that you worked through men, through people, through the apostles to compile the New Testament and bring us your truth. God, I pray that you'd be present with us today, that you would impress your truth on our hearts, that you would keep me from any error, and that you would make your truth clear to the hearts that are gathered here. We're your people. We want to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me if you don't mind. And we'll read Romans 3, 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Thanks. You can be seated. That's heavy. But the night is always darkest before the dawn, right? So we start, though, at the beginning with what sounds like a direct contradiction to what we heard the last time we were in the book of Romans. Paul was writing it, so he wasn't making a mistake. So what's going on? 
right? Because a little bit earlier, first verse in chapter 3, then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Okay, so he has an advantage. Then we get over here, and it's, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have, you know, come on, man. So, two issues exist in the text that we need to tackle. One is that the word Jews isn't in the text. So that's a problem, maybe. Um, ancient languages often do this. Uh, you, you may have come across this if you get stuck studying an ancient language like Latin or Greek. Um, verbs and nouns, more verbs, generally give their own pronoun. Um, Raven, who is my Latin student, knows that like Latin verbs do this all the time. So if you have the, the word heard, it can provide he heard, she heard, it heard. There's another form that provides they heard, but you can also use it just as the word heard. So often in these ancient languages, the, ver the verb carries its own pronoun. That's what happens here in this passage is the, the actual phrase is just advantage. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So the translators in this case become a little bit closer to interpreters. Who? Advantage who? Who has an advantage? Does whom have an advantage? Do they have an advantage? They... The translators of the English Standard Version take the perspective, and it carries, I think, it's, it's a valid argument that he's referring back to the Jews in verse 1, right? That's how language often works. We start by declaring a subject, and then we use pronouns to refer back to our subject over and over again. So the, the clearest argument to be made is that Paul is actually creating a, an almost contradictory argument. Is there an advantage? Yes, there's an advantage. Are they any better off in the end? No. That's actually what he's after. But let's take, what about, what if it's not the Jews? Paul switches from talking about them to talking about we. So the other argument that's possible from the text is that Paul's talking now about Christians. Are we better off? That's a valid argument as well. Either way, what Paul is seeking to say clearly is that while there's an advantage in having the law, you end up no better off. You end up no better off whatsoever. That's the argument here. So whether he's talking to Jews, which again, I tend to go with the people who translated the ESV that that makes a lot of sense, or whether he's talking about Christians that he's writing to, are we better off? We're only better off because of Christ. We're not better off because we had the law. No matter what, the issue is, his statement is clear. Having the law, while it's, it's an advantage, much, he says, in the end, you're no better off in God's economy. No better off. So, so he is, he's contradicting himself a little bit. Like, do you have an advantage? Yeah, you've got an advantage, but you're no better off. It's like... It's like if we were to go out and run a race. Let's say me and Ethan, because I'm pretty sure Ethan's faster than I am at this stage in our lives, respectively. 
I'm, I'm pretty sure. If, if me and Ethan were to go run a race, Ethan might say, now, listen here, old asthmatic man. I will give you a 10-pace head start. So would I have an advantage? Yeah. But if we were running a mile, would I be any better off? No. You know why? Because he's still... How old are you, Ethan? He's, he's still 15, and I'm still 32 and asthmatic and overweight. Like, I'd have an advantage, but I'd be no better off. So that's what Paul's after here. They have an advantage, still, at the end of the day, no better off. Um, so that's kind of, that's a big textual issue that happens there. Does the law leave us in a better position? In the end, it's an advantage, but they're no better off. At the end of the day, the Jew ends up in the same place as the barbarian, condemned. Condemned. Guilty. Guilty. So, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. As it is written. And Paul here goes on a tear. And he quotes the Old Testament. And he quotes sections of the Old Testament. And we're actually we're going to go through and look at, at these different sections that he quotes. Another textual issue, and, and when you teach from Scripture, you've you got to handle the textual issues, and then you've got to tell people what this means for them, right? For us. Well, here's the textual, the second textual issue in the passage is Paul's pretty loose with the Old Testament. He, he's quoting it, uh, and he is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say flat, he's, it seems like he's taking the verses out of context. And if you grew up like I did in kind of fundamentalist circles, you know that the, the way you interpret the Bible is you use three rules, context, 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 right? Like that's, that's how, so, so what do we do with Paul's use of the Old Testament here? Well, I think, I think there's an answer. Um, and we're going we're gonna to dig in and try to see that. Uh, but Paul quotes the Old Testament to make this point that that mankind is guilty. So let's just dig in. Um, and and this is I owe a lot of this sermon to John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and John Piper. And so if you if you were to go and read them or listen to them on this passage, you'd be like, Andrew, listen to that guy. Allow me to give them the credit. I definitely listened to those guys um, and learned a lot from them. So how does Paul support verse 9 and the sinfulness of all men from the Old Testament? Now think about who he's writing to, right? He has, over the last little bit of Romans, especially chapter 2, he has just taken the rug and pulled it right out from underneath his Jewish audience for sure. They're going, wait a second, what? Is he allowed to say that? Woo. And then he gets to, so what advantage is there? And, and he says much in every way, and they're like, okay, all right. Now he, now he remembers who we are. And here he goes again, pulls the rug out from under them. Because these passages come from, a lot of them come from the Psalms. which So he doesn't even have to go to the law, by the way, to show them that they're guilty. These 
He's so good, he'll go to their worship music and show them that they're guilty. That's how good Paul is. They come from they come from the Psalms and they come from Isaiah. That's where these passages come from. I would submit to you that as a writer, I often try to find clever ways to make a point. Paul, as a writer, and a little bit more even as a logistician, somebody who loves logic, is going to, I think, say to his Jewish readers, you're as bad off as everybody else. Let me show you from passages that you love, you're as bad off as everybody else. It's kind of like Jason talked about the O.J. Simpson trial, where there was, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. You guys remember that? Um, This is the equivalent of Paul figuring out how to make the glove fit and then doing it in front of everybody. Look, see, the glove fits. He's making his point in a really, really vibrant way, I think. So, how does Paul support verse 9 from the Old Testament? So he starts with, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If you turn with me, if, if you're in there, to Psalm 14. Uh, and actually there's another psalm that starts out much the same way. I think it's 53. Um, but Paul's quote's pretty spot on. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down on looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've been corrupt. There's none who does good. Not even one. So, okay. None. None who seeks. Now, there's, there's a tangent there that you could go off on that we probably won't spend a lot of time on, but none seek after God. In their natural state, no one goes, oh, you know, kind of curious to see if there's a God. Now, this isn't new to Paul, right? Romans 1, he says that they suppress the truth, right? So this is not, it's not like all of a sudden Paul's changing his mind. He's just continuing his thought. No one seeks after God. Now, Psalm 14, if you, if you dig in further, you'll note that Paul de, or that David, the psalmist, says God is with the generation of the righteous. So, wait, there are righteous? This is the out of context thing, right? Like it does Paul's argument from doesn't carry just from Psalm 14. So how does Paul? How does this psalm support Paul's point that verse nine, in verse nine, it says Jews and Greeks are all under sin? Part of the psalm that he doesn't quote doesn't seem to mean that everybody is unrighteous because verse five calls God's people the generation of the righteous. Here's the way to understand what's happening in this passage: Paul doesn't mean that every one of the six Old Testament quotes has the whole indictment in it. What he means is that across the whole of Scripture, across the whole of these quotes, 
there is present the indictment. So it's not you can't just grab one piece and go, this is the indictment. But if you grab them and take them all together, here's the argument. Um, so when Paul's quoting the Old Testament that there's none righteous, no, not one, he means that by nature, apart from saving grace, we're unrighteous. He doesn't mean that there was no way to get right with God. Sorry, I've lost my place in my notes. Can you tell? He does not mean that there was no way to get right with God and have a right standing with God in the Old Testament. He, Paul's aware of what was happening in the Old Testament. God's aware, Paul's aware of God's economy. Um, Let's continue through these passages, right? So then the next section comes from Psalm 5.9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Right, and then you keep on going to Psalm 140, verse 3. They make their tongues sharp as a serpent's, and under their lisp or under their lips is the venom of asps. Right? And then you keep on going to Psalm 10 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. And then you get the Isaiah quote, Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. And you'll notice, by the way, if you could go back and read these full passages, it'd be so good for you. This like the snake theme, that's a theme in a lot of these passages. It comes back to snakes a lot. Um, Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. They run, their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. And Isaiah has his Jewish reader squarely in, in his sights. He's not talking about Gentiles. He's talking about the people of Israel. Um, and then the final quote is in Psalm 36, verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So over and over again, he goes to these passages and he draws out the problem, the problem that we all face, Jew and Greek, slave, barbarian, take your pick, everybody's guilty. That's the point he wants to make. That's the point he's going to emphasize. So what's Paul doing? What's, what is the argument Paul's building here? Was well, building... A description that's pretty broad of what guilty people look like, right? 
Now, you don't have to tick off every box, but let's just dig in a little bit, right? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Do you seek for God? What does that even mean? The natural man never seeks for God. Never. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Guys, the gospel stands contra to whatever the world would sell you. Because right now, the gospel of the world is that you are meaningful. Even, even if you're even the worst person, they're meaningful. Don't tell them they're not meaningful. Encourage their self-esteem. Man, Paul doesn't have much room for self-esteem. They become worthless. The idea there is futile. It's the guy who digs a hole and then buries it back, fills it back in. Digs the hole, fills it back in. Nothing is happening. It's futile. It's worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, that's a tough one, right? Because Bill Gates is giving almost his entire fortune away. That seems pretty good, doesn't it? Um, you know, every time there's a, there's a school shooting, it seems like there's somebody who steps up and tries to stop the guy, and that seems like it's good, doesn't it? What do we do with things that seem... I, I went to a school last week um, and saw a, a person that I know probably is not is not a believer, but they were there mentoring children. That's good, right? So what do we do with the fact that sometimes people seem to do things that are good? What does Paul do with that? What's Paul's argument? Paul's argument is that even the good things that people do are still out of a heart that's conquered by sin, ruled by sin. So even the good that they do isn't rooted in good, doesn't count as righteousness on their behalf. And that's all of us apart from grace. Even the best thing you do is not enough. And that's Again, the gospel of our world is really very tied up in self-esteem and I do enough good to be okay. And Paul leaves no room. Even the good you do isn't good. Even the good you do isn't good. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. That's gross. Right? Like that's a that's not just in need of a, a breath mint. A, You've, you've come across roadkill. You live in West Virginia. I'm going to assume the answer is yes. Uh, I grew up in Puerto Rico with a cow pasture around us. And it was not a well-maintained cow pasture. It was like, a, let's leave these cows and then hope everything works out. And sometimes in a cow pasture like that, a cow dies. And when a cow dies, it's a big body, Right. And it decays, and little animals eat it, and it smells horrific, right? For a good ways around, it smells horrific. 
Their mouths are like open graves. It's like your worst nightmare, right? That's terrible. It's like it's that level of gross. That's what he's evoking here. This isn't me. This is Paul saying, you know, their mouths, it's like when they open it, just dead stuff is coming out. So it's not just a breath mint that they're in need of. Their mouths are like open graves. Well, what does... Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That is a whole lot targeted at people who talk a lot. And you know what? We, if ever there has been a generation that talks a lot, we're it. We're effusive, man. We're creating blog posts and sermon series and and you know, websites and video and all of this stuff. We're just nonstop content. What are we doing with that stuff? You know, and some of this is easy, right? Like, I'm not so filled with hatefulness that when I open my mouth, it's like an open grave, but... I confess to you guys, I do often struggle with bitterness. And it comes out as sarcasm. And guess what? I know enough of you to know that so do you. And that's serious business that Paul keys in on what people put out with their mouths. Venom of asps, like a viper. You know, they bite and then the venom comes up through their teeth and goes into their victim um man that's not something you want to be you don't want to be characterized by that right venom of asps is under their lips their mouths their mouth is full of curses and bitterness curses part is easier to avoid right like that's pretty easy i got a list of words i probably shouldn't say those but boy the bitterness part is hard bitterness part's really hard their feet are swift to shed blood. That one's tough too, right? Don't be quick to violence. Like, man, I I don't know, and, and I'll just put this out there, and you all can can take me apart over lunch. Um, when when Christian culture is inextricably tied with gun rights in a country. How does that work together with, with feet being slow to shed blood? I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a question that we've got to have answers to. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They leave a path of misery and ruin behind them, and their paths are ruin and misery. Boy, and that just goes right from, from political to just talking about everybody. What do you leave behind you? They do not know the way of peace. God's people are peaceful people. There's no fear of God. And this may be the most damning of all, right? There's no fear of God. The culture we live in spends lots of time convincing each other that there's no God. Don't worry about it. Nope. There ain't nothing like that. You don't have to worry about that. Do what feels good, right? Pursue pleasure, pursue money, pursue happiness. 
There's no fear of God before their eyes. At somewhere, at some point in that list, at some point, probably you went, oh, that's kind of me. Or, oh, that's, I've, yeah, I've, I've been that person. I hope. That's Paul's point. Is that everybody's that person. No one is free from guilt, right? No one. There's a bad furniture salesman in southern Ontario that used to holler, nobody, nobody, nobody gets away from it. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So this is Paul's exclamation point, right? Is that in the context of Romans 1 through 3, which is this big, long argument about whether or not you can really be right with God without Jesus, the answer is no. You cannot be right with God apart from Jesus. This is the exclamation point, right? And this all happens in that bigger context, so you can't, one of the dangerous things with how the Western Church does sermons is that we break down into these little sections and you can lose track of the fact that this argument is happening on a bigger scale. You need to understand that this is his conclusion to back in, in chapter 1 when he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He goes, from that, it's one big arc all the way over to none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's one big arc. It's not multiple arguments, one argument. Whew. That's tough. Right? That's tough. It's where we all, that's, that's where every human being starts out. By nature, since Adam and Eve in the garden made a decision to choose sin, we've all started out here. So what do you do with that, right? What do you do with that argument, with that problem? Well, here are the right outcomes. One, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't get the benefit of what Paul says in the very next passage, probably you ought to feel some crushing guilt. That's the right thing to come out of this passage. Apart from Christ is, oh heavens, I am lost. That should be where you land if you don't know Jesus. If not, I didn't do my job very well. Maybe you heard that and went, well, I don't really deceive people. Eh, I, I don't really, I, I'm, I'm not a violent person. I'm okay. 
I try to do good. If that's where you're at, you're wrong. There's none good, not even one. No one seeks after God. No one. So the first right thing to do with this passage, apart from Christ, is to is to go, oh, he is talking about me. He is talking about me. That's right. Hopefully, even if you know Christ, a passage like this gives you some pause for some introspection. Because we should have true sorrow about sin. If you have sorrow about sin, that's the most encouraging thing in the world. Because that means the Holy Spirit's at work in your heart. Right? If you felt bad this week when your mouth was full of bitterness, praise God. That means the Holy Spirit's working in you. That's amazing. If you felt sorrow over deception, praise God. That's, that's as it should be. Sin should lead to sorrow. Here's another thing for Christians. And this one I think we stink at. We should genuinely experience sorrow for the world. Right? I think it's so easy to cast ourselves as, as like at odds with sinners. We're not at odds with sinners. They're hopeless. You know, our battle isn't with flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 6, right? We don't battle with flesh and blood. Now, maybe some sinner lies to you this week and that makes you upset. But they're just doing what comes naturally to them, right? You shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when a country seems like it's heading down a path towards wickedness. Of course they are. They're sinners. That shouldn't come as a surprise. It wasn't a surprise when it happened in Rome. It wasn't a surprise when it happened um, to, to the split Roman Empire. It wasn't a surprise when it happened in England. It shouldn't be a surprise when it happens to us. It's sad. I'd love to forestall it as much as we can, but we ought not be surprised when wickedness reigns. That's what humankind is prone to. It's what we should expect. And they are not the enemy. Sinners aren't the enemy. They're people who need grace. The enemy is the principalities and the powers. Other people, the sinners, lost people are not the enemy. We ought, we ought to feel sorrow for them. Man, especially those of us, which I think most of us have family members who are lost, right? What's your orientation towards them? Are you angry at them? You mad at them? Really? And they're just lost? Just guilty in front of God. There's no there's no way that they're seeking God, right? No one seeks God, not even one. They've turned aside, worthless, futile. Wow, that's a sad place to be. Right? Even when they're trying to tell themselves they're happy, that's a sad place to be. 
So we ought to experience sorrow for the world. I feel like I feel like that's just a grave mistake that especially those of us who trend towards you know maybe a conservative approach to the world tend to make is we we see the wrong people as the enemy um, and, and we just get caught up in that they're us apart from the grace of god they a sinner is us right that's us god loves the world that's a true thing right um John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There's this big arc happening in history. And this is every sermon I think that I've ever preached is, is rooted in this. That there's a creator. and He made the heavens and the earth. Right? And he made mankind. And there was a fall happened in the garden there was one rule and it was broken there was a fall and sin spread to all men right and then there's this arc right where god is telling his story saying i'm he comes down and he says to abraham hey man uh leave this place where you're comfortable and go someplace you've never seen before i'll lead you don't worry about it Going to be, I'm going to make a people out of you. And then Abraham doesn't have any kids, and Abraham and his wife try to get clever, and it blows up in their face. And then God gives them a child. When his wife is 90 and Abraham is 100, shouldn't be possible. It happens. And here comes Isaac, right? And God says to Isaac, I'm going to make a people. And then along come Jacob and Esau, and God says, I love Jacob, and I'm going to make a people. And it doesn't make any sense. Along comes Moses, and they lead the people out of Egypt, right? And they walk across a sea on dry land. God's story is grand. It's amazing. It's impossible. It's impossible. And the people of Israel, even though they've got all this history, really quickly, I've been reading in, in Joshua and Judges lately, really quickly mess it up, right? Really quickly. And man, if you're a parent and you're worried about your kids and whether they'll remember anything, the answer from history appears to be no, they probably won't. And they'll mess it up their own way and they'll have to experience that because that seems to be what happens to God's children, Right? He picks the people of Israel. Hey, here's Joshua. You're going to go. You're going to conquer everything. It's going to be great. And then the very next generation's like, you know what? We really like these Asherah poles. They're pretty great. And I know we're supposed to serve the God of heaven, but I'm going to erect a pole in my yard and that's what we're going to worship. That actually happens. But God doesn't give up on his people, right? And we come all the way down to. Israel, 2,000 years ago, and God incarnate comes. And he goes to the cross and he redeems us, his people. He redeems them, pays the price for their sin. This is actual events that happen. All of that. On the third day, he rises again. All of that. 
is why when we see lost people, we should feel sorrow and we should hopefully long to draw them to joy. Because there is joy. There's restoration because of that redemption. But I didn't make it happen. Left to my own devices, left to your own devices, you'd be going, you know, I, I heard about your God, and he sounds great and all, but I really like the Asherah pole. And so I'm just going to put one of those in my yard, and we're going to dance around that. Is that okay? That's who we are, naturally. Paul's point, Paul's point, is that on our own, we are hopeless. Utterly hopeless. The ultimate application of this passage should be anticipation. Uh, R.C. Sproul very humorously refers to the very next verse as the apostolic but, and it should be funny. The passage does not end here, right? The apostle comes in. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's what we get next week. Anticipate that, Christian. Know that the thing that changes everything is Christ. He changes everything. That's been the story of Romans, right? Right from the very beginning, the first seven verses, which I also got to preach, have that encapsulated. And now he spent three chapters on it. The Bible is about this whole arc. It's everything that undergirds the Christian perspective on the world is that on our own we are hopeless. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's hope. There's hope. There's hope. In Jesus, who came to save the world. So again, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say this, and then we're gonna pray, and Jason's gonna give us a benediction. And we'll be done. Here's what you need to hear: If you don't know Jesus, there is no hope apart from Him. Truly. You don't know Jesus, you're a liar, you're swift to, to shed blood, you're violent, you're a deceiver, you're full of bitterness. So was I. So were we all. We were all without hope. But if you know Jesus, God's righteousness is displayed for all who believe through Christ Jesus. And that's amazing! We have great joy because of the gospel of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. God, our Father, you are a good Father. 
we were hopeless. We had no righteousness. We did no good. We had no fear of God. And you had a plan. A plan that transcends time. A plan to save your people through the sacrifice of your Son. Thank you for our Lord Jesus who died on the cross, rose again on the third day, and right now intercedes with you for us. We're thankful for the cross. We're thankful that the penalty for our sin has been paid. We're thankful that you've redeemed us and that you are at work restoring us, restoring your creation even now. We know that restoration will come. We know that it's coming even now. And we say, come Lord Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Amen. Would you stand for a benediction? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed.